Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word tonight. The kids look like they're having a blast out there. And, and uh, we pray that you'd bless their classes and their teachers and give them little ears to hear as well as us. Lord, help us to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, we pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul covers uh, at least five very important subjects. Um, these are things that he had already taught on, and so he's hitting the high points for us. I'll try to fill in the gaps, but each one of these is a teaching in and of itself. But you can study the rest on your own and do your own um, in-depth, let's put it that way, on these things. In verse 1, but, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. From this first uh, three verses, we already see clearly that Paul took the time to talk about eschatology with this young church. He was with them for three weeks, as far as we know. We know Timothy did some follow-up, but for the most part, Paul did all the teaching on the last days. It was that important, he thought, for new believers to understand that Jesus was coming soon, to, to know what to look for for his return. It wasn't something that was peripheral as far as their doctrine goes, something that they can pick up later on once they figure out how not to cuss and not to do the naughty things, you know, kind of thing. And the reason Paul focused on this, I believe, is because it has a purifying effect on people. It just does. I have my own discipline. I know what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. But if I add to that trying, the fact that Jesus could show up at any moment, well, that helps me quite a bit. As far as being in the right place, doing the right thing, thinking the right things. Uh, trying to be more like his son, uh, looking for him at any moment, you know, not going to be caught off guard. Now, Paul didn't do it only for that, but he thought that was the most important thing because that's our hope. And I think not only the fear of getting caught is a motivator, but also my hope is very close. It's very near. I don't have to think of, of well, in 30 years, you know, well, that's a long Paul, you know, think about your job. For, I get to retire when I'm 65. Some of you, it's like 65. Other of you, like 63, 64, you're like, yeah, you know. But the 20 year olds are going 65, you know. Well, Jesus can come at any moment, and we were to live that way. Jesus left the disciples in Acts chapter 1 with that very thought. They say, Are you going to establish your kingdom now? He said, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons, but I want you to focus on the next thing, which is the Holy Spirit who's coming. But he wanted them to know there's an earnest expectation. It could be at any time now. It may not be now, but it might be tomorrow. It might be the next day. It might be the next day. Chuck Smith got himself into trouble, and, I've, and I don't blame him. He says, I believe there's 84 reasons for Jesus to return in 1984. And everybody said, oh, he's a false prophet. Oh, he, he declared the one thing you're never supposed to declare. He says he knows the time. And that's not what he says. If you go listen to the teaching, he says, I don't see any reason Jesus can't come in 1984. And I thought, well, then I'll say the same thing today. There is no reason for Jesus not to come in 2023. 
Have I broken a commandment? Have I gone against God's word? Absolutely not. In 2024, I'm going to say the same thing. There's no reason Jesus can't come in 2024. And I can give you 24 reasons why he should come. I'm not declaring the actual day. I'm not saying it has to be that way. I'm not declaring myself a prophet. I'm saying as I look at the seasons, which is the difference, times is the time period, but seasons, how do we know seasons are happening? By the environment. We watch things change, don't we? We can see the landscape change. Everybody loves fall. Why do we call it fall, not autumn? Because the leaves fall. It's starting to get turn colors, and that, that layer is forming over that leaf so that it separates itself from the cambium layer, and it loses its nutrients and begins to fall. And we can see by the season. We can tell, you know. And that's all he's saying here. I don't have to write to you about times. You know that it can happen at any moment. I don't have to write to you about seasons because you know what to look for. All of us should be have that knowledge and be doing those things, looking for I think all of us can see the world around us as it is. Watch the news. Most of us older folks are absolutely dumbfounded. We didn't think things could get worse than 1984 for some of us. We're like, I don't know how we make it to 85. I don't know how we make it to 24 at this point, the way I'm seeing things. The seasons are obvious, I think. It's obvious that Jesus can return at any moment. And he wanted them to live that way, to know that about themselves. I'll read the scripture to you. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Jesus tells the disciples specifically not to worry about it. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to him, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. Well, we just read here, Paul says, you know the times or seasons. So what's, what's happening here? which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive the Holy Spirit, when he, or the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, they want to know if this is it. Give us some prophecy. Tell us something that nobody else knows about. Jesus says it's not for you to know that information. What you need to know is that the Holy Spirit is coming and you need to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, Judea, and all the surrounding, to all the world and spread the gospel of mine. It'll happen when it happens. That's not what I want you to focus on right now. Paul says you guys know what to look for. You know what to watch for. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus also taught... Verses 54 and 56. He then also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites, you discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? He's not contradicting himself. In Acts 1, he's saying, I don't want you to worry about that. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon you, the living God indwelling you. And you want to know if the kingdom's not what I'm talking about. But he does teach that we should be aware of these things. We should know, we should be looking, we should be expecting. I think that's that's what causes, in my opinion, Um, a lethargic state in the church is when we're not expecting Jesus to return. We don't look for him anymore. We don't think it could possibly happen. Oh, you've been saying that for decades. Well, yeah, since 1984, we have been saying it. I agree, but nothing's changed. 
We've used this example before, but when you're driving to Colorado across Nebraska, you know the drill. You're looking for the mountains. You're waiting for it to come. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And finally, your parents give you the map and say, look, you can see how far along we are. And you've seen since the last time you asked, we've moved a quarter inch and we've got 12 inches to go. So quit asking. You know, is the idea. Well, no matter what's happening, no matter how long you think it's going to take, no matter what your perception is, how busy you are, whatever, the car is moving closer all the time. It isn't that we've changed courses. is isn't that we've decided to go to the East Coast instead of to Colorado. We're getting closer and closer to the mountain range every time. Just because Jesus didn't come back in 84, we're decades closer to him returning than we were in 84. We're still moving closer to it. It's happening at any moment. We should always be looking for that with childlike wonder. The, uh, Jesus' return. Anytime. It could be tomorrow. If, it could be tonight. It doesn't have to be even tomorrow. Scott, that's good. Did you look outside of the clouds to see if they're... That's good. He's looking, you know. Paul wants him looking. He knows that's the healthiest thing for any church is to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Later on in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is rebuking Israel for not knowing the time. You should have known, guys. (laughs) If they should have known the first coming of Jesus, we should know the second coming of Jesus. And when we don't know and can't tell the times or the seasons, we're in the exact same shoes as they were, and we point the finger at them, how could they be so stupid as to not recognize Jesus is coming? We're in the same condition if we're not looking and understand the times and the seasons of Jesus' second coming. If we don't know that the rapture is going to take place, if we don't understand the great tribulation is coming... And we live our lives like they did back then at the first coming. Oh, yeah, they say the Messiah's been 400 years since we heard from him. Oh, they've been saying that for, well, for centuries. And Jesus holds them accountable. You should have known. And I'm weeping because you don't recognize it. We need to know. We should know. Paul thought it was that important to teach the Thessalonians this. Turn to Matthew 24, if you will. Because I think it's important to cover this topic while we're here. They were excited. Jesus had said some funny things to them. He walks out of the temple and says, I leave to you your house desolate, O Jerusalem. He walked out of the temple saying that it's empty. God doesn't dwell there anymore. Of course, that made the disciples uncomfortable, made everybody uncomfortable. He didn't mean it that way. I'm not sure that's what... So... Verse, 20, verse 1 of 24, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. The one he just said he doesn't live in anymore, the one he just said God has walked out of, the disciples said, come here, look at this place. 
Look at the doors. Look at the stones. They're trying to convince him that maybe he overstepped. They showed him the building and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. They were so excited to show him this massive temple. He says, you don't understand. This temple is gone already. As far as he was concerned, he could see it. And Tyscus Epiphanes is going to come in and he's going to wreck it. The, the, they're going to accidentally put this place on fire. The gold that lines the walls is going to drip down between the cracks. And they're going to disassemble this place upon one stone upon another to get to that gold. You don't even know that, but I'm telling you that I am not there anymore. I have left. The Lord is gone, and it will be destroyed because it's not my house anymore. I've left it to you desolate. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? We want to know all that. Now, they ask the questions out of order, but Jesus answers them in the order that they ask the questions. So if you wonder about why the answer seems a little out of chronological order, that's because he answers according to their questions. Take heed that no one deceive you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will devour you, or they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. One will betray another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. And he begins to describe more and more throughout that entire chapter of what's going to take place. These are the beginning of sorrows. These are the birth pangs. Birth pangs is what the Bible uses to describe contractions of a woman going into labor or in labor. These things begin to take place and they begin to happen more rapidly. Just like a woman goes into labor and they're 10 minutes apart, seven minutes apart, five minutes apart. You're going to see the same thing with this world. There'll be a world war and then a contraction and then a world war and then a contraction and then lots of little wars. And then you're going to see lawlessness abound. And then you're going to see, I don't know if anybody's got to watch, but we ought to know. When we're about three minutes apart, I think we better be looking. We better be thinking about getting to the hospital. We better be thinking about the birth that's about to take place. Make no mistake about it. The woman never becomes unpregnant. The baby is coming no matter how long it takes. Jesus is going to return. And we need to consider how we conduct ourselves and how we walk. Now, the second part, after times and seasons, he says, you should know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So we know the times and the seasons. We kind of understand some of the ins and outs. We don't know the exact time, and it is going to come like a thief. But we need to be watchful like a person should be watchful. In Zechariah 14, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's a long chapter, but we'll read some of it. 
He's a, one of the minor prophets. So he's in the Old Testament here. Let's see if I can come right to him here. I never can go right to it. After Habakkuk. If you've got the greatest Bible in the world, it's page 1225. Just kidding. Just make it easy. The day of the Lord. Zacharias, the prophet, says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It's something that's talked about in the scriptures all the time. The day of the Lord. In other words, man's had his time, his day, his grace, his mercy, his time of God waiting before his wrath is poured out. And then when that's over with, the day of the Lord takes place. Now, it's not a 24-hour period. It is, a, it is a time. But this is what he describes. The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall, be, uh, shall not be cut off from the city. For the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And as he fights in the day of, of battle and in, the day of, uh, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of, Olives, which, Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved uh, toward the north and half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Ezel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And he goes on to describe that more and more. Now it's cryptic. I understand that. It is hard to understand, but this is a picture of Christ actually landing on the earth, stepping on the earth, both feet at Jerusalem, making a valley so that people can walk through it and escape. They're coming. It's coming. The day of the Lord. It's a time period. All of Revelation chapter 6 through 19, I believe, describes this time period. Anyway, the day of the Lord comes as a thief. It's going to happen. And here's one of the things they're going to be saying when the Lord comes, right before he comes. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now we assume peace and safety is an exclamation point. There's two schools of thought. Of course, there always is, right? Nobody has a consensus on it. Either they're saying, we need someone to bring peace and safety. There's no peace and safety on the land. We demand peace and safety. And that is going to cause the Antichrist to rise up and bring that about. That's one of the schools of thought. The other school of thought is it's going to be like the days of Noah, where things are going on as they always have been. People are married and given in marriage this Saturday. Like nothing ever is going to change and it's always going to be the same. And that's how it was in the days of Noah until it started raining and everybody wanted to get in the boat. So nobody thought it was going to happen. Everybody thought it was a big lie and, and Noah's crazy for building a boat. And all of a sudden it began to rain and everybody realized we're going to need to, we need to get in the boat. Those are the two schools of thought. Is it going to come that way where no one's expecting it? We've got peace and safety, nothing to worry about. We don't need religion anymore. We don't need Jesus anymore. Or is it going to be we demand someone to take care of all of our problems like the Antichrist and allow him to rise up and solve all the world's problems? Maybe it's both. It's usually option C, isn't it? 
when it comes to A and Bs with the Lord. Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Wonderful scripture in Matthew 25 of the ten virgins. You can just write it down and read it on your own if you want to. But the idea is there were ten virgins. Five had oil in their lamps and they were looking and waiting. And if you don't know the story, the the bride is there. She's ready. And, and they thought it was fun to surprise the bride. Can you imagine doing that today? No. But the groom would just show up and say, now's the time for the wedding. And if you weren't ready, I mean, they'd come in the middle, you know, and there's always that husband that'd be like, I'm going at 2 a.m. I'm really going to, they'll be sound asleep. I'm going to wake them up. It's time to go. We're going to have the wedding now. And the whole wedding party's marching down with their torches, you know, and their flag. And they get, oh, they're here, you know. And they, oh, it's so exciting because it's a surprise. Why do they do all that? Well, God isn't imitating life. Life is imitating God's plan. That's the whole point of the whole thing. And so the ten virgins is a story of the ten bridesmaids, basically, that are supposed to be watching for the bride so she can get a rest and get ready. And they're looking for the groom. They're looking for the groom. Five were ready and five were not. Five had oil in their lamps, ready to light them when these guys come and we can all walk with them and leave. And five were not ready and didn't have any oil in their lamps and were not ready to go. And when he showed up, the five without oil said, can we borrow some of your oil? Can we? No, go buy your own oil. We got our own oil. We got enough oil to make it. And that's it. And the five were left behind because they weren't watching. They weren't. Jesus is simply saying here, Paul is, the Holy Spirit is saying, don't be sleepy virgins without any oil, without any idea that God is coming, that Jesus is coming again. Be ready. Fine, you don't have it lit, but you're ready and you've got oil and you're expecting and it could be any moment. Be ready for it. He says, we're, we're those people. We're not the five sleepy virgins that don't have the oil, we're the ones that are prepared and ready. We know Jesus. We understand in our hearts. That's our hope. How much of the church or believers in Christ all over the world aren't looking for Christ to come again? We have entire denominations that think it's an all an allegory and that there is no second coming of Christ. They don't believe the rapture is real. They don't believe the second coming is and that it's all just figurative. Those are some sleepy virgins. Those are some people that are going to be caught off guard and surprised. I want to be ready. I look forward to it. Of course I like my life, and I think we need to go on day to day, and you need to live day to day, and meet your obligations, your responsibilities. You need to walk your walk. We need to, like Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you when my kingdom's coming, because if I did, you'd wait, you know. He didn't say that, but you know. He knows us. I'm coming in 2024. We'd all be skating until 2023. Then we get busy. Quick, Jesus is coming, you know, kind of thing. Look busy. No, I want to be ready. But I want to live my life. I've got to take care of my wife and kids. I've got to take care of my grandkids. I've got to enjoy them. I've got to share the love of Christ. I've got to teach the Bible. I've got to, we're going to do all this. We're going to occupy till he comes. But I fully understand he's coming. And it could be any moment. Wouldn't this be a great time for him to come? You're at church. <laughs> you know, where were you when Jesus came? I was sitting in row four, you know, or seven or six or whatever. 
That was a good place to be. We're going to lock the doors. You do have to leave tonight if you, you know, <laughs> can't camp out here. He wants us to occupy till he comes. In Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexities, or perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. In other words, the rapture takes place right before it all goes down. When we begin to see these things happening, boy, it's getting pretty squirrely out there. Look up for your redemption draws near. That was Jesus's advice to us. That was his, not advice, that was his flat out warning. You can watch. You can see these things happening, and when you do, look up. Here I come. You know, wonderful. Uh, Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who who, who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet uh, helmet, the hope of salvation, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Hope. A lot of hope. We are not appointed to wrath. One of the most important verses you can understand and remember. We're not going through the great tribulation period. There are a lot of, there's a lot of Christians that hope to. I guess because they think it's going to be this really awesome time of standing up for the Lord. And I, and I understand their heart on the matter. They want to be the martyr. They want to be the one that's going to not deny the name of Jesus. Take my head. I don't care. I'm not going to deny it. And that's noble. And I think that's wonderful. I think we should all live our lives that way. I'm not denying the name of Jesus at all. I'm not denying my faith. I'm not, he's my best friend. He's the love of my life. He's everything to me. He saved me. I'm not going to deny him just to make you feel more comfortable. Absolutely not. He's everything. That's great. But we're not going through the great tribulation period. That, that time is a, a seven-year period. It's, it's, it's 6 through 19 in Revelation. is a time where God's wrath over a time period, over seven years, is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world as a last chance for Israel to accept the Lord. It's their 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, the 70th week. It's a, like I said, it's a teaching in and of itself. But that time period, that great tribulation period, is not for the church. It's not for believers. It's for Israel to get back on track. And it's for the rest of the world to maybe come to know the Lord too. Many do. But the time period, that seven years, that great tribulation period is meant for Israel. They rejected their Messiah. The church is, is birthed and born, and then the church is taken away in Acts chapter 4. Or not, right, Revelation chapter 4, we're taken up, just like he's talking about here. We're not appointed for wrath. In fact, that's what he tells the church. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, um, the church of Philadelphia, you're not appointed for wrath. And, and, and you're not going to, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, not in it, not through it, from it. I'm going to keep you from it. 
And that's how Acts, or that's how Revelation chapter 4 starts, is come up here. Come up here. And it ends with that. Meditauta. After these things. After what things? After the church. Then it begins. There is hope. He has not appointed us for wrath. I don't have to worry about putting up with some of it, all of it, half of it. I don't have any of it. See, we get, the, we get confused sometimes and we think that we're like Noah, the church is, and that Jesus is the ark. And we, we get these funny analogies, and it's taught that way, unfortunately. And, and that the church is in the ark, and we're kept throughout this God's wrath time, safe and protected. Therefore, no wrath is, is coming upon us. And they, but they forget about Enoch. See, Enoch walked with God and was not, and he's the one, he was just taken. And then the ark was given. See, the nation of Israel are the ones in the ark. That's who goes through the great tribulation period. Those are the ones that need that protection from God. That's where we get the 144,000 Jews that are protected and sealed. And anybody that has that mark on their head and so on, they're in that ark. And it, that's the, that, but we're Enoch, this mysterious figure who all of a sudden just walks with God and is not. That's the church. Paul calls us the mystery all the time. I'm telling you a mystery. It's amazing. You know, this church is a mystery. That's us. And so we get confused about these things and we think we're going to go through this great tribulation period. And we're not. We're not appointed to his wrath. Even in uh, Revelation chapter 6, the people on earth declare that it's God's wrath beginning. Okay? And so there you have it. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to live with that sick feeling in my stomach of, am I looking for the Antichrist? We're not supposed to be looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking, I'm not looking for the mark of the beast. I'm not looking for the forehead, the hand. I'm looking for Jesus. The church is to be looking for our Savior coming in the clouds and taking us home. We're not to, we discern the times and the seasons, but I can tell you right now, I have no fear of putting a chip under my hand or one of my forehead. I mean, I have other reasons for not doing that. But the Bible teaches when the mark of the beast takes place, you have to deny Christ. You have to worship Satan in order to get this mark so that you can buy and sell during this great... They don't require any of that. So it'd be awfully convenient not to have to fumble your phone out and be able to walk in and go ding and walk out of Walmart. I'd (laughs) sign me up if I didn't have some weird thing, you know. I'm kidding. Christians, we don't have to worry about that. Now, when they say in order to buy and sell, you need to renounce Christ... Okay, there you go. But that's not what we're looking for. See, that happens afterwards. The Antichrist institutes that. So that means we're looking for the Antichrist. And isn't that just like Satan to cause us to look for him and not to look for Jesus Christ? We get distracted too easy. Jesus is coming. We're not appointed to wrath. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I'm being taken home to be with the Lord. I'm being raptured, as we already talked about, being caught up together to be with the Lord in the air forever. Peace, (laughs) you know, I don't have to have that worry. That's why it's the gospel. It's good news. Verse 11, very purposeful. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. See, these words are meant to bring us peace, meant to bring us comfort. Verse 12, 
And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. He's talking about pastors there. He is. He's talking about leaders in the church in this portion of Scripture. Now, it's a little self-serving for me to talk about that today, but there's a reason for it. There's a reason Paul puts this here. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, you ought to be able to follow the leader. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, is that meant to give uh, leaders in the church a position of of, uh, lording over you? Of course not. That's not what it's for. But it is meant to keep the church from becoming consumer-based, which it has. I hear a lot of comments about, oh, that big church over there, it's nothing but a bunch of lights and shows and fireworks and smoke and smog. I remember when it used to be just flat out Jesus. You know why it became like that? Because that's what the people asked for. And there was so much pressure on those people to produce, to entertain, to make it more exciting next week. I didn't feel it this week. It wasn't the right songs this week. There was so much complaining. You know what? The guys in charge, they're just men. Eventually, it's like, fine, get the smoke out. Maybe that'll keep them happy for a while. Maybe they'll hear the word of God in between the, the, the guitar riffs and between the drum and between the, the flying angels on, on, on carabiners throughout the... Maybe that'll get people to come because I just want them to hear the gospel. I just want them to hear the word. It becomes consumer-based. Ah, nobody, nobody said hi to me at church today. We don't have Walmart greeters. I mean, we have greeters out there, but... That, we came to worship Jesus too. The songs aren't for us. The songs are for him. The teaching is meant to change us. The word of God is meant to move us, to be more like him, to conform us to the image of Christ. It's not meant for me to be happy with at the end of the day. It's meant for me to receive and let it grow in my heart. We become consumer-based. And so Paul says, hey, before you're too overly critical. And by the way, every single person that serves in any church is doing it to the best of their ability. Is it perfect? No, but are they doing it to the best of their ability? Yeah. And so instead of walking in like a consumer who might go to the next store if they're not treated properly, maybe treat it like a family. But no matter what, i got to show up and have Thanksgiving with them. So I better learn how to deal with their personality, our personality conflicts. I better learn how to deal with their idiosyncrasies. I better, I better learn to bur- bear their burdens, you know? Can you imagine shutting down because it wasn't done perfectly, you know? What, a, what an impossible goal. What an impossible goal. Leave that to Target and Walmart to figure out how to keep their customers happy. But the church, we just need to sharpen each other up. We need to learn patience. How do you learn patience? By putting up with people. How do you, how do you learn uh, perseverance? <laughs> you know? How do you learn the hard things? You know? Unless we are around people and personalities that are hard sometimes. I think Paul says this here, and also I believe he's the writer of Hebrews also, to keep that from taking place. I am of Apollos. 
They used to say, I am of Paul. Well, I am of Jesus only. I'm better than all of you. Oh, boy. You know, talk about tags out. That's an old school saying, isn't it? You know, tags out. Look what I'm wearing. Look at the horsey on my shirt. Nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that. I have, my dad gave me lots of his shirts, and I still wear them to this day, but that doesn't make any difference. Otherwise, we start branding, branding ourselves. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. That's a lot there. That's a list. He's going to do that again here in a minute. But can you imagine? Warn those who are unruly. So when you're at church, make sure you warn all the unruly people. But we want them to come back next week. See how we run into problems when we begin to be people pleasers and not doing what God's actually called us to do and to be and to act and how to help each other and to grow and to do the hard things, you know? The young, the two young ones in my family are—they're doing uh, swimming. They just started. So yesterday was an easy practice. Today was a little harder, you know. And they're saying, "I can really feel my abs." I said, "Well, hard things make hard bodies. That's it. Soft things make soft bodies, and everybody here knows that, right?" I don't know what show it was that I was watching. And again, I'm bringing pop culture, and I shouldn't do that. But here I go. But he was saying, "Man, how do you look so good?" He goes. Diet and exercise, it's not that hard. <laughs> well, it is, <laughs> but you're right. It's pretty simple. Diet and exercise, it's not that hard. <laughs> I want to be a very strong Christian. I don't want to be moved by the things around me and by the circumstances around me. I don't want to be easily toppled or tossed to and fro like a, a boat on the sea, like a wave. I don't want to be that. I want to be rock solid. I want to be steady. I want to be even. I want people to crash against me. One of the things I want to buy for our fellowship, it's kind of a weird thing, is an anvil. Because I remember a teaching one time where they said, the Bible is the anvil that's worn out many a hammer. I thought, well, that'd be a really cool thing to sit right there in the front. The Bible is the anvil. Well, I want to be an anvil too. I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm the Bible, but I want to be that strong to no matter how many hammers hit me, I wear them out. They don't wear me out kind of thing. As a believer, I want to be the, the best that God can make me into. I want to be that hard, soft and squishy and lovable and all that too on the inside. You know, I want a soft, squishy center, but I want to be able to put up with whatever the world has to offer me or throw at me or try to bring me down. And I'm not going to move. I want to be like Paul who can say, oh, I cared for you like a mother cherishes her children, but can also get whipped and stoned to death and yet rise from the dead and walk back into the city and keep preaching the gospel. I want to be that guy. You know, how does that happen? That happens from perseverance. It happens from Doing it day after day, we got being immovable from Jesus Christ. So warn those who are unruly. And then at the same time, comfort those who are faint-hearted. 
and those who are weak, I want you to uphold those. Make no mistake about that. We don't want you to remain weak. That's not even nice, you know? What if you never put your toddler down? Oh, they're having a, it's a long walk. And it is a long walk. You need to pick them up when you're at the zoo. That's a long day, you know? What if you never put them down again? What if you never exercised their legs? What if you never pushed them to a tantrum, you know? It's hot, I want to quit. Okay, I'll pick you up. You're exercising and they're working and they're getting stronger and stronger, you know? As a Christian, we need those times. We need God to make us into who he wants to make us into. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. And and that's a workout, by the way, because it's very easy to do that. That's our default. You do me wrong, I do you wronger. (laughs) But to not respond that way is not human. It's supernatural. To be wronged and to not return that evil. That's God working through you. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Love that. That's a powerful statement. And in fact, another time he says, I want you to give thanks for everything. Because some people take this verse and say, see? See, it says, give thanks in everything. I don't have to be thankful for it. There's another passage where he says, give thanks for it too. Here's why. If you've ever played football, they have something at the beginning, usually in the summertime, called two-a-days. That's two practices a day, morning and afternoon, and those are not fun. They're hard. They're hot. You puke. You dehydrate. It's hard. The reason they're doing that is so that when you play your games, you win. So when it actually comes down to hiking the football and running to the next guy who didn't do two-a-days, you're going to plow them over instead of them plowing you over. That's the idea. I give thanks to God for the trials and the tribulations that come into my life. I give thanks in them, but I want to give God thanks for them because I know these are meant for me to make me into someone different than I was. It may be a a two-a-day. It may make me puke. It may be something I wish I'd never signed up for. But I thank him for it because I'm becoming. I've placed myself and my life in his hands. Mold me and make me into who you want me to be. And sometimes the thumbs press hard. And sometimes I get out of shape. And sometimes it hurts. But I thank him for having his hands on my life and molding me and making me into the vessel he wants me to be. Thank you for that. Hindsight is 2020. I look back at my life and I see all the things God brought me through to where I am today, and I'm thankful for every one of those things. At the time, I was not excited about going through those things, but I'm thankful for those things. Verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Mm. Easy to skip those five words. Or read over them so quickly and move to the next thing. Do not despise prophecy. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Okay, there's four things we got to do. Better remember to do those things. I think we better take our time here. Do not quench the Spirit. I do not want to quench the Holy Spirit in my life or in the fellowship. That's easy to do. And I believe what quenches the Spirit is the flesh. I don't know how else to put it. 
I'm sure there's other things and there's other ways to maybe teach this, but to quench the spirit, to stop the spirit, to keep the spirit from moving the way he wants to move in our fellowship or in my life. It doesn't, it just takes my flesh to get in the way and it quenches it. I have to be careful about that. And so he warns us, Thessalonians, don't quench the spirit in your life. I want you to not despise prophecies. Let the prophecies be. I love all of God's prophecies. There's a couple times in the Old Testament where the prophets are saying, the real prophets were saying, uh, we're going into captivity into Babylon and we need to kind of accept it and just go because this is God's will for us. And there were other false prophets that would come alongside and say, don't listen to them. Peace, peace. Everything's going to be wonderful, which may be what we're talking about, peace and safety. It could very well be false prophets. Jesus isn't coming. Everything's going to be fine. Go about your business. He accepts everybody just the way they are. Pay no attention to those doomsday people that say the, you know, that the great tribulation's coming. We have those people. We have those false prophets. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold fast what is good. We have the responsibility to judge the prophecies. I don't have to believe everything everybody says to me. God told me when, and I'm, well, be careful about that in our lives, by the way. God told me we're supposed to do this. Then you better do it. And if it falls flat on its face, and it's not of God, and it ends up that God didn't speak, don't say he changed his mind, just own it. I didn't hear from the Lord. I made a mistake. It was not of God. That's okay. Everybody's going to go through And what you do, you do by faith. And I think you should really step out and do what God calls you to do. But if it's wrong and it's not of God, say it. But don't, say, don't, don't try to cover over your mistake by saying, well, I think God changed his mind. He's not doing that anymore. You know. Because here's some of the tests we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29 shows us how to test. Let two or three prophets speak in the church, allow the prophecies, and let the others judge. So if someone stands up in our fellowship and says, thus saith the Lord, anybody that does that, that's fine. But stand by, we're going to tell you whether we believe it's of God or not. And you better be able to handle the criticism. Because if we don't think it's of God, we're going to tell you. It's a hard thing, but that's the way it is. Let the others judge. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm very leery of anybody that prophesies a condemning prophecy to the church. We're not condemned. We may sin. We may make mistakes. We may fall short of the glory of God still, but the grace of Jesus Christ covers over all of that. The blood of Jesus Christ is forgiveness. There is no condemnation. So I'm very careful about that. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, we go old school, Old Testament here. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So even if someone says, you know, uh, I got a prophecy from God. He wants us to go worship uh, the tree over here, I don't know why, but he wants us to worship the tree. And to, and to demonstrate that I'm telling you the truth, I'm going to make a tornado in the sky, and a tornado appears. 
We're all supposed to say, I don't care if there's, I don't care if an earthquake happens. I don't care if you, I don't, no, I'm not worshiping a tree. I'm worshiping Jesus. It's that big of a deal. So signs and wonders are not proof or evidence that someone is speaking, thus saith the Lord. It's never been the case. In fact, in the last days, when it comes to the great tribulation period, he's going to seduce the world with lying signs and wonders. We know that's how the Antichrist rises to power. And he's going to cause others to worship. And so that's what he's saying. Watch out for that. He continues on in verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. We don't do that anymore. But we're not going to let you say anything anymore. <laughs> but put you to death. I mean, it's that big of a deal. Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. So we don't do that anymore. Thank goodness we don't stone people that give false prophets prophecies anymore. But he does want us to take it that serious when someone tells us not to worship Jesus anymore. I don't care if it's from the government. I don't care who it is. When they tell us not to do that, I understand that this scripture exists. And that's how big a trouble they are in with the, with the Lord. Okay. Now, I'm not going to stone them and I'm not going to take them out, but I do know that that's how mad God is at them for trying to take me or any of the people away from Jesus Christ. It's that big of a deal to him. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 23, but the prophet who, pre- who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do we judge this? How do we know whether it's a false prophet? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So someone prophesies in her father, I believe that God says this is going to happen. All right, we'll wait and see. But I don't have to believe you until it happens. And if it doesn't happen, I mean, we're not going to kill you or anything, but you probably better not stand up next time. You didn't say things that are from God. Be careful. It's, it's a big deal when you say that. I believe the Lord. The Lord showed me this. That's fine, and I'm all for that. And I don't want to quench that spirit, but you understand that everybody doesn't have to believe that. We're to judge it. And we're going to watch and make sure that happens and takes place the way you said it would. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That helps us with a a, a very obscure teaching that the body and the spirit and soul are separate and whatever happens in the body doesn't matter. Um, It does. Paul says, I want you to pay attention to what you do physically. I want you to pay attention to what you do in your spirit and your soul. Those are all important to God. And I pray that he sets you apart or sanctifies every area of your life, not just your mind, not just your soul, but your body too. I want it to all be set apart for me. Preserve blameless. Um, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Philippians 1.6. You know, he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We're not going to do that tonight. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read in all, to all the holy brethren. 
Uh, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians to be looking for you, not to be worried about all the other things, but to be looking for you, Jesus. I pray that we would live our lives that way, always living for you and looking for you um, with hope and assurance and with peace in our hearts, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.